How can you not be ready to get up and preach after that? If you know that movie well, then you're probably wondering why I cut out the most iconic scene of that whole movie, which happens right before that scene. Uh, that's the scene, if you've ever seen Braveheart, heard of Braveheart, seen a movie clip of Braveheart, you've probably seen the scene where Mel Gibson, a.k.a. Braveheart, is up there and he gives the speech. That's right, where he says, you know, people are wanting to run away, and he's like, you know, run, you may live, but, you know, one day, you know, you'll be dying on your bed, you'll look back on this time and wonder, you know, would you trade all the days of your life for this one chance to come back here and tell our enemies, they may take our lives, but they may never take our freedom. That's the speech we love. That's the speech we want to hear. What we don't want to hear is the next piece that comes where he's saying, hold, 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 hold as the Calvary's coming at you, right? That, that's not the speech that makes the movies, right? That's not the speech that makes the clips. That's not the speech that you see the highlight reels of. And that's so true to life. We, we like going to the motivational speech uh, that the chief salesperson gives. What we don't like is actually having to go out and do the sales. We, we like the rah-rah moment. We like the time where the coach is in the locker room giving us that speech where we charge out to the tunnel what we don't like is the gritty, hard part of the game where you're actually in the struggle. Uh, we like when, if you've ever done wrestling before and you're coming out there and they got your theme music and you're coming out there and you're, you're, you're making circles, laps around the map, I mean, you feel like Rocky, right? What you don't like is when your coach is yelling you in the middle of the match trying to tell you to do something, you're like, I can't, right? Because that's what's hard. But that's where the battle truly is. The rah-rah speech is all about the fact that at some point, you're going to need to hold that line. When they're coming at you, you need to hold the line. And so we're talking about being battle ready. It's all leading up to, at the very end of the day, though, you have to be willing and able to hold that line when it comes time to hold the line. We started off looking over uh, in the book of Judges about how there's times where God will put enemies in your path purposely because he wants to grow your faith because you can't live off the faith of somebody else. So he's going to purposely put enemies in your path so you can learn uh, the art of war. And then we picked up over in Ephesians chapter 6 where he starts talking about how God's given you all the tools you need to fight, but you've got to recognize the fight that you're in is a spiritual war. And as, as Pastor Alex talked about last week, and sometimes a war is a war within your own mind for control versus your faith and trusting in God. But in the middle of all the stuff in Ephesians 6, when he's talking about the battle, there's this phrase that comes up again and again in that passage specifically, and you'll find throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and it's this concept of standing firm, which is what you see going on in that battle scene there, both with the shields as well as with standing there when the Calvary's coming at them. So I'm going to go back and reread Ephesians 6, and notice how the focus of this passage is all about taking your stand, standing firm. So he says, finally, be strong in the Lord. And in his mighty power, and put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand. By the way, when he says, be strong in the Lord, and also the, the phrase, take your stand, uh, the language is almost identical there between uh, be strong in the Lord and take your stand. Uh, sometimes you'll see, you know, take your stand in the Lord or stand in your faith. So he says, so take your stand against the devil's evil schemes. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world. Uh, and against the spiritual forces in the evil, uh, of evil in the heavenly realms. So therefore, put on the armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, here it is, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, what do you think he's going to want you to do after you've done everything to stand? He says, I want you to stand your ground. And after you've done everything you can to stand, what do you think he wants you to do next? Stand firm. So wait a minute, let me get this. After I've stood firm and stood the test of time, after I've gone through the battle, then what do I get to do? 
Well, don't you quit standing. You need to keep standing firm. It's not time to give up until the battle's fully over. And the battle isn't over until this life is over. Until you step into eternity, that's when your battle ends. So he says, after you've done all you can to stand firm, stand firm again, which I love about that scene. So the arrows are coming in. Don't run away. Stand firm. Put up your shield. What do you do after you put up your shield? Stand firm some more. So he says, stand firm then. And then he says, now, remember, you've got the belt of truth buckled around your waist. You've got the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, your feet are fitted with the readiness of the faith that comes with the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up your shield of faith, which you can extinguish the flames of the arrows of the evil one. Take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So this concept of standing firm, uh, you'll find uh, both the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the primary roots of this, though, goes back to Isaiah chapter 50 in verse 7, where Isaiah is foretelling what it's going to be like for the Messiah when he comes. And sure enough, what we see in Jesus, he fulfills all the things from this picture that Isaiah lays out uh, in the section of Isaiah, sort of towards the end, like you know, 48 to 52 or so. He's talking about the suffering servant Messiah when he comes. And when you get to Isaiah 50, he says this. He says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who would pull out my beard. I did, keep in mind, he's writing this hundreds of years before Jesus ever comes. And this is exactly what happens with Jesus. He says, where I offered my back to those who would beat me, uh, my face for those who pluck out my beard. And then he says, because this, uh, I'm sorry, I, I did not hide my face from mockery and from spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a stone, determined to do his will. And I know that I will not be put to shame. Uh, this imagery there, I've set my face like a stone. Uh, it's this, you know, rock unmovable, I'm not going anywhere. It's funny in how many, if you think about a lot of the war movies, how many of the war movies can you think of, do they focus in on the primary hero of the movie with their face, with this resolute gaze, right? I mean, is that not what Mel Gibson has right there where he says he'll never take our freedom? And how many other times in that movie does he have that look where he's looking to the king or the king's army like, I'm not going anywhere. You want to leave? Fine, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, think about every other war movie you can think of. I mean, does, does Gladiator not have the same look on his face when he looks at the emperor and he says, I am Maximus Dridius Marissimus, whatever his name was, um, you know, husband to a murdered wife, father to a murdered son, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next? Is it not that same steely resolve? Or perhaps Gerard Butler, is that his name? In 300? When he looks at the Persian and he says, anybody? This? What? No, he says, this is Sparta, right? You can't go, this is Sparta. No, right? He's got that look of steely determination. We're not going anywhere. And other people may bow the knee, but these knees don't bow. Flat out, we're not going anywhere. Why? Because this is Sparta. We're not moving. And when Isaiah is talking about the disposition of Jesus Christ, as he goes before his trial, he's got a steely resolve on his face. He ain't moving. You can do what you want to me, but I'm not backing down. I'm not moving. And so, so this picture, this imagery of a face like stone. The same idea comes back up. Maybe some of you all know this passage uh, where Jesus is saying, who do people say that I am? And they say, oh, I think you know, you're like Elijah. Can be a prophet. Blah, blah. Then what does Peter say? You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And he says, yep. And from this day forth, you'll be known as the rock, Peter. His name was Simon. He says, you're going to be known as the rock because it's on this rock I will build my church this picture, the same steely resolve 
the same face like a rock that says, I will not be moved. When we talk about a strength of a relationship, what do we often talk about a relationship? Our relationship is solid as a rock. It's the same picture that we see that our relationship with God, when we talk about having a loving relationship with God that will enjoy for all eternity, what God wants is you have a relationship with him that is solid, one of a permanent, steely resolve. If you're going to be battle ready, you have to have the resolve to say, I've got a relationship with God and nothing's going to change that. I don't care what happens, come hell or high water, I'm not walking away from God. Because your resolve will be tested, guaranteed. But the question is, will you hold, will you hold, will you hold when everything in the world comes at you? Um, the same idea comes up again uh, and again uh, throughout the scriptures. Um, the idea of, of standing uh, your ground will come up again and again. You'll see Jesus will talk about it. Uh, Paul talks about it a whole lot. Uh, when Paul is going to write a letter to Timothy, uh, the sum total of Second Timothy chapter, Second Timothy, the letter, is all about Paul trying to encourage Timothy to stand. He, Paul has sent Timothy to the city of Ephesus, which was a very difficult city to minister in. Uh, when Paul was there himself in Acts 19, there was a riot that uh, was started by this. Uh, silversmith union uh, who was making these little idols and they said you know this whole talk about Jesus is, is, is making it really bad for business and us trying to sell these idols we need to get rid of this preacher and so they try to run Paul out of town and so they start a big old riot well Paul ends up leaving Timothy there in Ephesus to continue the good work after the riot happens and so Timothy is there struggling uh, in a difficult time and Paul says you need to stand firm and the very last letter we think Paul wrote was probably 2nd Timothy and 2nd Timothy ends with Paul talking about how I'm about to die and he summarizes that. Maybe some of y'all have heard this passage. Uh, maybe you've heard people talk about this or re- reference it in some way. Second Timothy chapter 4 is where he says, from already being poured out like a drink offering. It's his poetic way of saying, I'm about to be executed. My blood is about to be spilled. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering for the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good faith. Sorry, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. There is now for me laid up a crown of righteousness in store. Which, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but all those who've longed for his appearing. So this is where he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And now Timothy, that's what I want you to do. And so the letter of 2 Timothy is all about him saying, Timothy, this is what I want you to do. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, earlier in the letter, he tells them kind of how to do it. He gives them sort of an outline, and he uses some word pictures of, of different professions that, that give an insight into how it is that you are to stand firm. And so I want to go back to 2 Timothy 2 to see what he says about standing firm in the faith, where he says, I want you to, uh, starts off, he says, uh, you then, my son, be strong in the grace uh, that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, this phrase where it says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, it's the same language as, you know, stand firm in the Lord, stand strong in the Lord. Uh, over in, I think it's second, or 1 Corinthians 16, it says, stand firm in the Lord. Uh, over in Philippians, it'll say, stand firm in the faith. Here he says, stand firm in the grace. And you might say, well, which is it? Is it the grace? Is it the faith? Is it just the Lord? It's all talking about the same thing. Uh, in the same way, when we did a, a series a little while back talking about what does it mean to have a loving relationship with Jesus Christ that lasts for all eternity? And why do I say it that way? Why don't I say we need to have faith in Jesus? Why do you use the word love and not the word faith? It's because the Bible uses these words interchangeable in the same way you use these words interchangeable. We talked about in that series about how when you're talking about a marriage relationship, which is similar to our relationship that we have with God, the kind of promise and commitment you're making that lasts, you know, it's supposed to last a permanent time. You know, I say, well, what do you need to have marriage? Is it love or trust? Which is it? Which is more important? Can you have love and no trust? Can you have trust and no love? Which one's better for a marriage? You're like, you can't separate out the two. The very essence core of that kind of a relationship requires both, right? 
It requires both, and you may break them over time, but you've got to rebuild them and repair them if you're going to continue to have a relationship that's going to last the test of time, right? You can't have one or the, uh, without the other. You have to have both. They're both intertwined. That's why sometimes in Scripture, when it talks about our relationship with God, it'll talk about love. Sometimes in our relationship with God, it'll talk about our faith. They're both there. It's, it's, it's faith is a believing trust or a relational trust. So we, you'll see the faith and the love. And what is our faith in? It's in God's grace that's poured over us because it's only by God's grace that we have a righteous standing before God. And so he says, stand strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about standing strong and the relationship that you have with God. All of those are talking about the same thing. I talked really fast there, but I hope you all got it. All right. <laughs> Come up fair. Back to the text. Um, so the issue here is standing firm, to remain in this, is, is what, what Timothy's getting at. Uh, I'm asked sometimes about salvation, and how do you know if somebody is saved? How do you know if somebody has a relationship with God? And it's usually in the context of this, and I think everybody's got this story. We all know that one friend, that one person, could be a relative, could be a friend, could be somebody that you knew, who at some point in their life, they were on fire for God. In church, every time the door is open, if anybody was a Christian, they were a Christian. However, something happened at some point in their life, could be a tragedy happened, could be job change, could be they just moved and they drifted away, and now they're at a place where they don't have a relationship with God, or they're a professed atheist, or there's a lot of sin going on in their life, and you would never know that they ever had any Christian background whatsoever. Anybody know anybody like that at all? One person in the room, maybe four, four, five. Some of y'all are just scared to agree. But look, we all have that person, right? And we're wondering, are they really a Christian or not? Like, will I see them in eternity? You know, tell me, pastor. And my answer is, I don't know. Now, I can give you a general principle, but I, you cannot apply every general principle to every specific case. Does that make sense? There's an exception to every rule, and I don't know the person, okay? However, what you see in the scripture is, uh, there is a premium put on or an importance put on endurance. Uh, the only way you know anybody truly believes something or is doing something is what happens over the test of time. And so Jesus would say it this way in Matthew 24, verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Has there ever been a truer statement? He says, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And we say the same thing like that. You really know who your true friends are when all hell breaks loose, right? You know, because when the wickedness and the, sin, and the temptation increases, you get to know who, who really loves who. You know, do you really love God or do you really love yourself? That will come up the more the temptation is there. And then he says, you know, um, at the end of the day, it's the one who stands firm. See, there's that same concept right there. To the end is the one who is saved. Now, I say that I can't address your friend because of my own life. So when you ask me, when did I get saved? Part of me wants to say, well, it happened when I was eight years old. When I was eight years old, I was at a camp, and I was asked the question, if you were to die tonight, would you be in heaven tomorrow? If you don't know, then why don't you come forward and get that nailed down today? What's an eight-year-old to say? Do you want to go to hell, little boy, or do you want to go to a pizza party for life? <laughs> I'll, I'll, t I'll take pizza party for life. What do I got to do? What do I got to say? And so I came forward, and I prayed a prayer and gave my life to Jesus. I can still tell you the exact spot it is. It was at a camp in South Florida. I've taken all my kids there, and I still go to that same spot, and I pray there every single time I go back to the camp. However, after camp, I was a kid. You know, I was like, I did kid things, and I really didn't live like a sold-out, Bible-believing follower of Jesus Christ who was battle-ready. It wasn't me. I was a kid, right? I was eight years old. And then in 
middle school, or like I think it was late middle school, our church got a new youth pastor, and I got involved in the youth group and really got on fire for God and had a really you know, tight and close relationship with God. And if you looked at my life then, you'd say, man, that kid right there is going places with Jesus. He's a Christian. But then I went to college, and I was a college kid. I did all the things college kids do, which is not going to church. And then sometime late my freshman year, I wandered into the student auditorium where I heard there was this concert going on. A friend of mine invited me, and it turns out it was like a like Jesus revival thing. And I was in the back of the room bawling my eyes out, realizing how far I had wandered away from where I was brought up. And so I sort of rededicated my life. But then right after that, God called me in the ministry. And I said, whoa, that's a little too far. I don't want to do that. And so then my sophomore year, I was every bit the college party kid that you could imagine because I didn't want to do that preacher thing. And then the end of that year, I finally realized this is what God called me to do. This is where I need to be. It's where I feel at home. And there wasn't anything for me in those other places. And so I went to church and I walked into church and people were like, what is this guy doing here? And then when I said, well, I think God's called me to ministry. And they <laughs> laughed at me. But it was, you know, then that led me on a path where eventually I went off to preacher school and here I am today. So I say all that. If you were to take snapshots of my life and say, well, that kid used to go to church, but look at where he's at now. Is he a Christian? Is he not? Who knows? Like, I remember being drunk at an Alabama concert. There's so much in that. Um, (laughs) And two people who later were at the church that I ended up going to saw me that night. One of them knew me after that. She was at that revival thing. And she looked at me and she said, this was, this was the phrase where I knew God called me to ministry, but I didn't want to do it. And she looked at me and she goes, Stephen Swisher. <laughs> Stephen Swisher. And this is while I'm drunk at the concert in the aisle, like literally two friends of mine are literally bringing me back to my seat because I didn't want to miss Alabama after the opening things. And she says, God's got his hand on you and big plans. And one day you're going to realize it. That's all she said. And she just loved on me and prayed for me the whole time. There were other people there, though, who are the ones who had seen me at that concert, and then when they saw me at church a year later, were like, what's he doing here? No. Was I, when did I get saved? Eight years old? Youth pastor? First year of college? Third year of college? When did I get saved? I don't know. I think it was when I was eight. But I think there was a lot of kids who also came forward when they were eight and it didn't take, so to speak. It wasn't legit. How do you know that it took? Because when you look at the track record of the 47 years I've been alive, it's pretty clear who I am and where I am and where I'm at with God. Right? But if you took a snapshot at any one time, you'd clearly conclude, if you saw me at that Alabama concert, anybody other than Jenny Jones would have looked at me and that was actually her name, anybody other than Jenny Jones would have looked at me and said... That clearly didn't take. He's clearly not a Christian, right? That's why I say I can't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know where somebody's heart's at. I know God's going to judge with as much grace as beyond humanly possible. But we only know through endurance. And that's why it's so important to stand firm because everything is going to come up against you. What, Joe, or what Satan wants to do more than anything else is to prove you're a phony. Isn't that what his whole thing was with Job? God, he don't love you. He's just in it for the good stuff. Once you remove your blessings, you won't ever see him again, guaranteed. And so one by one, Satan is allowed to take away every single one of God's blessings, his family, his health, his friends, every single one of them. And that's where you get those moments with Job, and you can see the steely resolve in his face. He might kill me, but I will still put my hope in him. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away, but I'll still praise the name of the Lord. 
what, am I going to accept the good stuff from God, not the bad? I'm not going anywhere. Those are those moments of Job that we love. Why? Because he's got that steely resolve that he's not going anywhere no matter what Satan does to him along the way. Now, I think Satan has to do that with every human being. And God allows seasons where he says, okay, you can take away their blessings. And many of us get shown for the frauds that we are along the way, don't we? And the question is, is will you still love God when there's no other reason to love God other than him? Will you stand firm in your faith? So Timothy, will you? I'm actually going to finally get to teach this principle now. All right. So he says, uh, you then, my son, stand strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's a whole stand firm, stand strong in the Lord. Uh, and, the, uh, and in the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, so entrust them to reliable people who can be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive the share of the crops. So reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord is giving you insight into all of this. Um, so let's spend a little time reflecting on what it is that uh, the Lord was saying uh, here through Paul. And he uses four different uh, analogies or four principles that we're going to pull from four different analogies. Uh, the first is the uh, teacher principle, and that is simply to transfer what it is you've learned. So he says, Timothy, I've taught all this to you. I want you to entrust this to others who can then entrust this to other people too. So what is teaching others and trusting to others what you've been entrusted with? How is that helping you stand firm? Well, if you've ever taught anything, you know why. Because there's a level to which you have to know something to teach it that you don't have to know it to be able to pass the test. You with me on this? Like a lot of you in here are like, what did, the preacher, what did the preacher talk about? And you can spit it off. But if you were to get up and then lead a Bible study on that, you would all of a sudden realize, I need to understand this to a different level, level than I understand it right now. And so by teaching, it forces you to learn to a deeper level. Uh, next thing it does is, it sort of challenges your own hypocrisy. It's hard to get up and teach something when you know you're not living it out yourself. And so by entrusting it to others, you're, having to be, you're forced to be putting it in practice in your own life. Otherwise, you know you're a hypocrite when you stand up there and teach it. I, I've shared this before. I can't stand the Mother's Day, Father's Day window. Because traditionally on the preaching calendar, it calls for some family series. Whether it be a marriage series or a parenting series. Like, why not? We, we love those series. We, I don't. Because Satan will attack me, my family, my marriage, whatever, during that season. So he can whisper in my ear. With everything going on at home at your house, can you really get up there and teach this? No, you can't. Don't teach that passage tomorrow. And it's a struggle. It really is a struggle because the attacks come when you've got to teach it. But it pushes you. Are you really going to live this out if you're going to get up there and say it? Uh, the, last thing, or the last thing that teaching does is it keeps it fresh. Uh, I remember years ago in my naivety, before we ever started to celebrate recovery here, it was almost like God was preparing us to do it. I had a friend of mine who had issues with alcohol, had lost a lot in his life, and I was talking with him. I was like, so, you know, this 12-step program, it looks like it's been great for you. You've been, you know, sober now, tw uh, what, six, seven months now? That's great, man. So when do you, when do you finish? And he kind of laughed. He's like, eh, it's not really like that. Like, no, 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 like, like you've been going to the meetings and stuff. Like, when, when, do you, when, do you, when are you done? He's like, I, you, don't, you don't really understand. I'm like, well, I know. Help me, help me understand. I wonder, like, 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 when, like, is there a graduation? Like, what can I come to? And he's like, no, it doesn't work like that. You, you, you keep it going. Like, well, till when? He goes, well, forever. Forever? Like, why? And he was trying to explain it. Understand. I say understand it now. You know, having been a part of, you know, starting to celebrate recovery here, I understand. 
because the 12th principle or the 12th step tells you you don't ever stop. The 12th, 12th step and the 12th step program is simply this. Um, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to others, this carry this message to others, that's the teaching principle, um, and practice these principles in all our affairs. You see, by being a part of it as a leader and as a mentor, what happens is it keeps these principles always in my forefront. When are you most vulnerable for a fall? When you think you're already too strong, right? Or they say pride comes before the fall. Right when you think I've graduated, I don't need this anymore. Are you ever more vulnerable than that point? And when you think, I don't need to be battle ready. I've already fought my battles. The enemy's gone. It's not a big deal anymore. I can be complacent. The history of every fall of every great civilization is when they think they don't need to be battle ready anymore. But if you're out there teaching it and you're mentoring somebody else and training somebody else, it keeps you all the more engaged, all the more real as to the threat that's out there. So the teaching principle, share what you've learned. Uh, second is the soldier principle. Uh, join with me in suffering like a good soldier. No one serves as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but the tries to please the commanding officer. And this is focus on the mission. Uh, focus on the mission. I remember when I first moved here, I had some misguided understandings of what it meant to be a man. Uh, part of my understanding of what it meant to be a man is that every man loves sports, and if you don't love sports, well, what kind of man are you really? And so I met a guy here uh, who was a man's man if there ever was one, and he served in the military, and I was like, so, man, what's your team? You know, what, what, you know, what sport do you follow? What's your team? He goes, I don't got one. I'm like, what do you mean you don't got one? Like, every guy's got a team, and clearly you're more manly than I am. It's hard for me to admit that, but you clearly are. So who's your team? And he goes, man, I've been deployed so much. I mean, I'm gone six to nine months out of the year every year in a war zone. I don't have time to follow that stuff. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, you're doing real man stuff, right? <laughs> Not the pseudo man stuff where you let your self-esteem be wrapped up in what some 19-year-old kid can or can't do out on a field because you, know, you like that college team, right? Oh, okay. Just doesn't have time to get wrapped up in the affairs. I asked that same guy a while back. I was like, hey, man, you see this on Facebook, man? Things are blowing up. He's like, what? I, I, I don't have it. What, what is it? What, what, what's going on? Doesn't get, have time to get tangled up in all these different affairs. Why? Because you're focused on the mission. You know, think of all the things we get focused on that gets us off mission. Some people ask us about, you know, you know, is church, you guys going to do a voting guide with the election coming up? No. Well, why not? Don't you, don't you agree with this group? Democrats and Republicans need Jesus. <laughs> I mean, why am I going to sell out my life for some incompetent, self-serving politician? Seriously, on either side. Does that not summarize all of them? They're all sold out to their own, own purposes, and yet I'm going to sell out my ministry for that cause? Pfft, no way. Everybody needs Jesus. So that's why we don't talk about politics here. Why? Because if we're going to be about the mission of Jesus Christ, we don't have time to get tangled up in all these other little affairs. And yes, you can make all these good reasons why you need to get more involved in all these different social causes or political causes or whatever else it may be, but at the end of the day, it's detracting from our focus on Jesus Christ. You do what the commanding officer wants you to do. I'm going to follow Jesus, not the other stuff. Um, so we focus on the mission. Uh, next is the athlete principle. Similarly, anybody who competes as an athlete does not, receive the victor, uh, does not receive the victor's crown unless they compete by the rules. The athletic principle, you've got to play by the rules. Uh, there's no shortcuts to success in athletics. And whatever shortcuts you take, it's cheating. Now, what I love about the current home run race right now that's going on, if you haven't followed baseball, Maybe you're just not man enough. But anyways, um, 
Uh, right now, Al uh, Albert Pujols is, was trying to get to 700. He just hit his 699 and 700th home run this past weekend, uh, which was you know, great to see. And then, of course, on the other side, you've got Aaron Judge, who is chasing after Roger Maris's record of 62. I think he's sitting on, what, 61? Right? Is he sitting on 60 right now? He's, wait, he's sitting on 60, trying to get to 61. And people are asking the question, why are people still pitching to this guy if he's already hit 60 home runs? I think the reason why, honestly, my own thought, I may, may be totally off on this, I think there's a collective sentiment that doesn't like the fact that right now the sort of home run records are held by three guys who were into doping, and that's how they got there. And it's really kind of neat to see a guy who maybe just maybe isn't doping right now and is trying to do things by the rules. And so we're all excited for a guy who would get to 61, why? But isn't the record 73? Not if you're trying to compete by the rules. And you see there's a value in that. Sometimes you look at athletes and what they do and you think to yourself, man, I want to look like that. You know, how, can I, how can I get my body looking like that in, in two short months? <laughs> there's no shortcuts, man. You don't need to laugh that hard at my body, sir. But we want to take shortcuts to relationships, finances, everything else, and even in our relationship with God. Because, you know, you know what's a lot easier than holiness? Telling you how unholy you are. And if I can make you feel, and I can point out all of your flaws, I feel a lot better to myself. And that's a nice shortcut to holiness, isn't it? And isn't that what the church has been known for? Throwing rocks at every other group that's not as holy as we are? These are all shortcuts to holiness. If you want to get there, you've got to do it according to the rules. There's no shortcuts to holiness. He talks a lot to, to Timothy in this book and in, in his previous letter to Timothy about all the physical training that goes into spiritual disciplines. There's no shortcut to having a ripped holy life. There just isn't. Uh, and you've got to do it according to the rules. Uh, he talks about this also in 1 Corinthians 9. He'll talk about you know, competing according to the rules. It's all about self-discipline. I, I beat my body so I can make it a slave so I might not, might not be disqualified when I tell other people about Jesus. There's no shortcuts to being in shape spiritually. And then lastly, you've got the farmer principle. Uh, where he says, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Uh, I, you know, I first read this, I was really kind of thinking, he was talking about, you know, your need to be feeding yourself with, you know, the word of God. But when you really think about it and you really read what he's saying here, he says you need to be the first one to enjoy your share of the crops. Uh, the picture here is when you're doing things and following after Jesus, there is a blessing that comes from it. Sometimes that blessing is seeing the impact you have on others. What is it that keeps people going to celebrate recovery? A lot of it is seeing the impact you're having on others who are at Celebrate Recovery. What is it that makes you want to lead a table group? Because you see the impact it had on you. What is it that makes you want to lead a small group? Because you see the impact it has on you. Everybody who leads uh, our um, Financial Peace University are people who have benefited from the program of Financial Peace University. And so you want to see a part of that. There's this great uh, passage over in uh, John chapter 2. And this is when Jesus performs his first miracle where he turns water into wine. And what it says, it says, you know, uh, they ran out of wine, and so Mary comes over to Jesus, like, hey, can you help us out? He's like, I don't really want to. Is there my time income? But, you know, all right, Mom, fine, 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 whatever, okay. So he tells the servants to go fill up some big jars of water. And so the servants go fill up big jars of water. Then he tells the servants, will you take that out of the party and serve it? And they're thinking, what, we're going to pour water in the cups? Just do what I ask you to do, please. Thank you very much. At least that's what Mary says. Just do what he says to do, right? Isn't that what she says? He doesn't say it. She says it for him. Just do whatever he says. It may sound crazy. Just do it, all right? So they bring the thing out, and they pour it, and they master the feast. says, oh, my goodness, you guys, you know, saved the best for last. Normally, everybody wastes, everybody's wasted, and then they serve out all the cheap stuff so you don't know. But, man, you guys saved the best for last. And it says, it says, for the master of the feast did not know that water had been put into the jars, but then there's this little throwaway verse. 
it says, but the servants knew. In other words, the only people at that wedding feast who knew that a miracle had happened were the servants. And that is so true in church and ministry life. See, you'll come in week after week, and if you're not serving and, and involved, you don't know all the stories. You don't know what happened. However, when you've been tracking with somebody and you go to bat- baptism, is a perfect picture of it. When you go to a baptism, we're going to be having one out at the beach in a couple weeks, uh, I think the first week in October, and you go there and you see somebody get baptized, you're like, golf clap, oh, that's great, yeah, yeah, so that's wonderful, that's wonderful. But there are other people who know that person's spiritual struggle, and they know the water that's been turned into wine in their own life, and they see the transformation that's taken place, and they are going nuts, and they are losing it, and they're excited, and they are cheering, and they're coming around, and they're running out of the water. One of the neat things we got to see at the youth camp was other students just ru- we did baptisms like our last night there, and not, we weren't all prepared to do baptisms, right? But you saw students just running out in there in their last clean, dry pair of underwear. <laughs> true story, on the last, because on the last night of camp, that's a true, running out there, why? Because they were sharing in the joy of what had happened. Yeah, you can clap for that. You can get a little golf. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um. But he says the, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. You should take time to enjoy the fruits of your labor and the fruits of your ministry and look back and say, wow, look what God's doing. Don't stop to enjoy what the benefit of your serving and striving and training yourself for God's purposes has been. Take time to look back over it and celebrate it. Why? Because you'll need that for the battle that is to come. And so he says, take all this, reflect on what I'm saying, think about all this. And the Lord will give you insight. Would you join with me to close our time in prayer? Father, there are a few words that we need more than the admonition to stand firm. Because yes, it is a reality as we looked at in the series that there's a spiritual battle going on that Satan right now is coming before you day in and day out. Pleading that, he, that you might remove your blessings from us for a season. That the genuineness of our faith could be revealed. So for time and time again, we'll go through the trials of Job with a question of will we stand firm? Will our face be like stone as it looks towards you? Will we truly be able to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, and throw off every sin that entangles us? Or will we turn aside? Father, you've given us the tools to be able to stand firm from the various principles of teachers and of soldiers and of athletes and of farmers, things that we apply in our everyday life to make us successful everywhere else. May we apply these same principles to our resolution to stand firm in our faith with you and have a relationship with you, Father, that truly will last for all eternity. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.